Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I am here with Brad Kearns, our very own, and we are chilling at Mark Sisson's Malibu Casa. Where's Mark? He's uh, he's in Greece. Oh yeah. And I am currently going through his pantry, freezer, refrigerator, <laughs> sussing out all of the paleo goodies that get sent to them. And uh, so beautiful Malibu day here. I want to talk to you about this Primal Endurance web course you got going on. Well, I'm first of all, so honored to be on the Primal Blueprint <laughs> podcast. It's been a while, and you're really killing it with the show and having this incredible smattering of guests talking about great topics. And so thank you for listening, too. And um, I've been enjoying hosting the Primal Endurance podcast, and we like to get a lot of crossover back and forth. But yeah, it's an exciting day because we're finally launching this first in a series of comprehensive multimedia digital courses. So the dream here was to take the book, Primal Endurance, which was very well received by the endurance community, and kind of bring it to life to broaden the educational experience into uh, multimedia. So what I did was I traveled around for the better part of a year and sat down with the world's leading experts in endurance training and competition and the old-time great athletes, Olympic champions, world champions, um, and the people that I interviewed and quoted in the book as experts. So Uh, You go through the book chapter by chapter, and we will have everything brought to life in a video instruction format. So when I sit down, I'm the host of the course, so you're going to get sick of my face and my voice. But I sit down and say, chapter two is all about periodization and structuring your year in different forms of training. And so you can read everything in the book, but there's so much enhancement when you're sitting down with the experts. And we have so much actionable videos where I'm doing running technique instruction and things that you can't describe in a book. Or Mark's doing the primal essential movements and demonstrating it. We have recipes from start to finish from scratch showing you what to do in the kitchen. So it gets you, you know, all in with this uh, immersion experience into how to learn about endurance training and get everything you need to know from a vast collection of experts. Nothing ever has been done like this in the endurance scene forever, except for having a shelf full of books, stack of books from many different authors. So now we have it all here and the video format is great for learning. That's awesome. Before, and most people who listen to the podcast know who you are. You co-write a lot of uh, Mark's books with him and you run the publishing side of our company, but let's talk about your endurance history. You actually still, don't you still hold a record in the Iron Man or something really awesome? Oh my gosh, that's so long ago. Who, who can remember? But you know what's <laughs> funny is um, for Primal listeners, you know, Mark and I both got our, our start in the endurance scene. And Mark's a bit older than me. So when I came on, I, I started to race professionally. Uh, I raced from the age of 21 to 30 on the professional triathlon circuit. And I was based in Los Angeles and Mark became my coach early into my career. And so he was uh, communicating these kind of uh, advanced concepts that no one had really embraced yet. And it was based on his experience. Like and his, what at the time? Was well, he? really, like slowing down and taking it easy instead of being this mileage-obsessed, chronic training freak 
where you just push yourself as hard as you can every day until you drop and hope that that translates into competitive success. And that was the ethos for a long time, like in Mark's day of the running boom in the 70s and the marathon and Frank Shorter won the gold medal. And you got out there and you tried to run as many miles as you could per week running. Trying to get 100 miles was the standpoint for an elite athlete and see if you wouldn't fall apart. And if you didn't fall apart, you could sometimes have occasional success on the race course. And so, so he was even ahead of his time before he, you guys even got into the primal endurance details. He was already on to the slowing down part of it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. So this stuff was coming to fruition decades ago. And the sad part is that we're still here in 2017 with all the technology and all the ability to share information and have research and have communication from what the athletes are doing and biofeedback monitors to know what your heart rate was and know what your wattage output was and the variables that affect your training and pricking your finger for your blood lactate levels in the morning and all this great technology. And we're still fixed in this disastrous uh, chronic mindset where we think that we have to struggle and suffer to achieve success in endurance sports, possibly because the competition itself is very grueling and running a marathon is no piece of cake. It's not like having a tennis match with your pal and then having lunch at the club. It's a very difficult and challenging sport. And so the mindset gets translated into every single day, thinking you have to get up, put your shoes on, and push yourself at a heart rate that's slightly too elevated and causes fatigue and burnout and breakdown and illness and injury. So we both went through that as athletes, trying to do the right thing, trying to honor conventional wisdom. In my case, I was looking up to the leading athletes of the time in triathlon, and they were known to put in these massive volume of training. And these were really strong guys and they were winning races and they were studly and they were featured in the magazines. And so I'm like, geez, I got to try to keep up with these guys. So I got to go pedal my bicycle 300 to 400 miles a week and I have to run 40 to 50 miles a week and I have to swim 15 to 20,000 meters a week. That's over 10 miles and fit, fit this all into a and daily schedule. And manage to have a social life, like, right? Yeah, that's I mean, this, is, this is the, the joke that comes in the background of all endurance athletes forever. It's like, oh, there goes your social life or good luck with that or good luck good keeping luck your, your job, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny to joke about, but the truth is, is like people are out there struggling and suffering decades later in the same manner that Mark and I did and realized how disaster it was, disastrous it was to your physical body, to your health, and also compromising your competitive potential because you're too tired and you're fried and your adrenal glands are blown out and your immune system is screwed up and you have musculoskeletal injuries left and right and upside down. Every single day you're dealing with something, you're basically you know, held together by glue and trying to go out there and once again pound yourself. So um, you, know, you learn things the hard way and they stick in your brain and they stay in your heart and in your spirit forever. And I know what it's like to overtrain and to bonk and to be a pig where I had to shove as much food in my face every single night. I had to force myself to eat more food than I wanted to because I knew if I didn't, I would run out of energy on the next morning's 12-mile run in the mountains. And so all this stuff that we thought was the norm and we thought was the path to greatness because, again, I was aspiring to the fastest guys and the best pros on the planet. So I was trying to model what they did. And Mark was trying to do the same thing. And as he writes in the beginning of Primal Blueprint, he wore his body out and destroyed his health in so many ways through his pursuit of By being like an elite athlete. By like age 30 or something, right? But, like and same was... with me, age 30. I was done and retired. And I felt literally like I was 80 years old when I was 30. When I got out of bed 
and my ankle creaked and my other foot, the plantar fasciitis was so bad that I had to limp to my jacuzzi, which I was able to write off. Thank you, IRS, because it was a training device that I needed to be able to train. I'd limp in there and I'd roll it around in the hot water. And only then could I put weight on my foot. And then I'd lace up my shoes and go run nine miles. And something's wrong with that picture. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is what informs the, uh, the evolved approach of balancing stress and rest, moderating your training heart rate so that you develop aerobically in a fat-burning manner rather than drift into those high-glucose-burning anaerobic patterns. And then bringing in the really fun part was like to, to merge our various passions of having this endurance background and knowing what it takes to train. And you can't dream about a marathon and visualize it in bed and go think you're going to do it. You got to work hard and you got to put the miles in, but doing it the right way. And then also bringing in the primal element, which is the diet, the, the lifestyle, the managing stress, the pursuing outlets, moving frequently and taking hikes and walking to the, the store and pedaling your bike to the farmer's market and being more than just a very narrowly focused, narrowly defined athlete where you're good for one thing, which is getting your shoes on and running in a straight line or get, sitting on your bike and pedaling for 80 miles and climbing the hills and coming back. And then if your neighbor needs help, uh, moving sandbags into place to help the, manage the, the, the flooding from the storm, you lift up two sandbags and you're sore in the lower back the next day because you're a pathetic piece of crap that's only good for one thing. And that compromises not only your health, not only your longevity, but also your endurance performance. So now, today, the enlightenment that's that's there, if people are willing to listen and want to sign up for the course and talk to people like Simon Whitfield, Olympic gold medalist in triathlon and Olympic silver medalist who had a very long career, he's saying, look, you have to get your, you have to train your mind. You have to be calm. You have to do calming activities. We talked to Katie Bowman. She has a wonderful following. We're good friends with her and she has the don't just sit there course that we have on primalblueprint.com. But she's talking about the importance of everyday regular movement, where just because you're an athlete doesn't mean you're immune from this medically, uh, this scientifically validated health condition known as active couch potato syndrome. So just because you put an hour in hard at the gym every morning or an hour on the roads or two hours on the bike, and then you get on the train and commute, sit at a desk all day, come home, lay on the couch it's and watch digital things. It's just as narrowly focused as sitting on the bike and running in a straight line. It's yeah. just, and I feel those effects. We were talking before we started this podcast about driving on the leg and sciatic <laughs> and some of the effects of that. And so I agree with you. And most people do that. But when I go to the gym, come home, and let's say I do have a day where I'm sedentary, Boy, do I feel it. And I really got to stand up and walk. It's, it's just like, I, it's in my head where I know, oof, I can feel this. Even though I just put in two hours of activity, then you go to this for the next 12. And then you really are setting yourself up for a disaster. I feel it in my body. That's why I love uh, standing and just kind of pacing and walking around, even if it's during a phone call, right? Switch it up. I want to get back to one thing, though. You talked about this old paradigm, um, and obviously people learn a lot more through the book and the course, but I remember when I was hanging out with you and Mark, and you guys were geeking out and being nerds about some old stats and looking at some old, you know, you're going through names. Oh, I remember Johnny Smith. Yeah, he did that. He did that. And then you guys sort of were going through and pointing out all the people who had either died or had like pacemakers or something like that. So for someone out there that might be in the old paradigm, why is, you know, hitting 100 miles, working at that level, why is it bad for you when we all thought, oh, the more you work your heart, the better it is? Because that's not really true. And we know that now. But can you explain that to people who might still kind of be caught in the old paradigm yeah, there? Yeah, right. I and mean, also look around and look what these people look like. 
the fittest humans on the planet filled with veins from head to toe. And, uh, you know, like I said, when I felt like I was 80, I was 30 years old, I was a pretty fit guy. I had a nice muscular slender physique. I could perform magnificent endurance feats. I could, you know, get on my bike and ride all day long and uh, on water. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was, um, you know, the highest level of fitness, but at great expense to health in so many ways. And one of the ways that we're now finding out years later is that this constant chronic pattern of endurance training traumatizes the heart to the extent that you get scarring and inflammation in the sensitive, delicate walls of the heart. You get scarring and inflammation every time you train in a strenuous, vigorous manner. So if you get on your bike and you pedal for four hours and you do that several days a week and you balance that with hours of swimming and hours of running, you're pushing your heart just like your bicep muscle if you're lifting too many weights or your, your hamstrings if you're uh, doing something crazy in training. You're also stressing your heart because you're not respecting the importance of balancing stress and rest and you're pegging your heart rate at too elevated of a beats per minute above and beyond the aerobic maximum limit where you have a definition that it's comfortable, you're getting plenty of oxygen, it's not a big stress on your heart. For example, hiking and going on the Appalachian Trail for a month in the summer is a very healthy thing to do. It's not going to stress your heart to do low-intensity aerobic. We're built for that. Humans are built for that. That's the foundation of the primal blueprint. Move frequently at a slow pace. But when you get up there into the training zones, when you're a serious athlete and you're doing a mountain bike ride with a group who's a little better than you, or you're doing uh, whatever it is, running and, and joining the team in training to prepare for the marathon, and you're day after day after day stressing and inflaming your heart, you're creating this scarring on the uh, ventricle of the heart, and what happens is eventually you have a high probability, a high risk of developing AFib, atrial fibrillation, or other heart conditions where your electrical signaling of your heart has been compromised by the trauma of athletic training, of the stress. Do you know, uh, in layman's terms, to explain to me what it is that screws up that signaling? Is it just that it's being taxed so much, it's off its natural rhythm of rest, and you know, I, I, what is it? Uh, watch this TED Talk by Dr. James O'Keefe. It's on YouTube, and it says, uh, the title is, Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a comfortable <laughs> pace. And he gets into it in good detail. And the, the cardiologist in this game, Dr. Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia, eatingacademy.com, has written about this topic and is on the forefront of uh, describing, and it's in Primal Endurance in detail, talking about this, because it's a very important topic to wake up and realize that your training may be elevating your cardiac disease risk factors rather than moderating them. And that's now, happened to a lot of athletes, you know, the AFib. Oh my goodness. It's Mark and I keep a registry and it's kind of sad because these guys who are the picture of health, picture of fitness have often had their careers cut short in the middle of their careers because their heart starts working one day, starts beating funny, starts beating too frequently, starts beating not enough. Then you got to go in and get that pacemaker. And it's just a sign of a damaged heart that's been overworked, overstressed, and that very, very delicate electric electric signaling, the firing of the neurons, and then the ventricles, which, which beat and, and respond to the electrical currents, if those are scarred and inflamed and damaged, that's all it takes is to trip you over the edge to have a poorly functioning heart. An elevated risk factor of some of the, the worst occasions are people dropping dead in the middle of workouts. Ryan Shea was an Olympic marathoner. He was an Olympic hopeful one of the top marathoners in the country, and his heart literally exploded during the Olympic trials marathon run right in the streets of New York City. Steve Larson, who's a great guy in the triathlon scene and one of the most 
versatile endurance athletes of all time. He was a professional bike racer, a world champion in mountain biking, a world champion in triathlon. He dropped out of a heart attack during a track workout in Bend, Oregon at the age of 39. And a lot of times these stories come out and there's some sense that this was a genetic uh, uh, defect or a genetic uh, uh, demise. And that may very well be true, but it's just the same as we talk about with, uh, with diet and you're carrying too much excess body fat because all the people in your family are fat and it's in your genes and you have the fat gene. And all those statements may be true, but they require actualization from lifestyle habits. So if you have a fat gene and you eat the standard American diet and, and you're eat gonna express it. two, three, 400 grams of carbohydrates per day and produce that much insulin, you're going to be fat. And I'm sorry about your best friend who's going to be skinny as skinny as heck their whole life because they have genetic attributes that don't predispose them to storing fat. They're going to cause other problems and still disease risk factors, even if they're slender. But when it comes to training, it's kind of a crapshoot because if you push yourself too hard and you train in a chronic manner, some of these people, Lance Armstrong is, you know, been going strong and one of the greatest genetic gifted endurance athletes of all time. And he's still going strong in his late forties. I just heard him on his podcast saying that he's feeling a little tired these days now. And then it's like, finally it's catching up to him, but the people with good well, he genetics, had a lot of help, didn't he? that too, I mean, that, that could on. have a, is he even really an example we can use based it, on it's that? It's these old time guys. Some of them go strong forever and ever, and they live happily ever after Pete Kane is on uh, the endurance course, and he's been competing at a high level in triathlon from pro in his early days in his 20s, and now he's world champion age grouper over and over. He's won several world titles. He's 54 years old, and he's competing every season at a high level and training hard in triathlon. So he has those genetic gifts. He's also smart and knows how to train, and he coaches people in the Bay Area, Kane Performance, and they know how to train because he gives them his experience. But other people aren't so fortunate. They have stressful jobs, stressful family circumstances. They're going out there to blow off steam with quotes in the air uh, when they train. But all they're doing is throwing more stress onto their plate. And they might be vulnerable in their cardiovascular system. They might be vulnerable in their endocrine system. So you see people with the blown out thyroid that mm -hmm. you're an expert on and blown out adrenal glands. Yes, yeah. Or they might be fragile. Like in my case, I was fragile um, just in the uh, the musculoskeletal emotionally, <laughs> emotionally too it took a while to work through that but i was i was fragile physically i couldn't handle the volume of work that my peers did so very very early into my career i realized i was a guy with a lot of talent i had a high vo2 max which is the level of genetic attributes for endurance i had good coaching i had good frame of mind and good decision making but i realized early on i couldn't adapt to that level of training. And I, I don't think I ever would have been able to because I was sleeping half my life. I was doing everything right. And I still would get tired after, you know, putting in a couple hundred miles a week instead of 400. So I had to adapt and consult with Mark as my coach. And he'd say, look, here's what you do. Once in a while, you go out there and perform a breakthrough workout. And that's one that's difficult and challenging enough to achieve, to stimulate a fitness breakthrough. It's not your hour-long step class that you did this morning that you do eight times a month and you make it through just fine. That's a fitness maintenance workout. It's great to do, it's your foundation, but once in a while you push yourself really hard. And on the other days, and this is the breakthrough technology, if you call it, that was communicated to me 30 years ago and we're still not grasping it today. And the athletes still think it's about consistency. And what's it about is stressing yourself to achieve and stimulate a fitness breakthrough and then resting and recovering and allow your body to adapt and grow stronger from the stimulation. 
And the muscle heads beat us to it. They're much smarter than these highly educated endurance athletes. They know that if you break that bicep down to shreds from doing eight supersets of massive arm curls for four hours, and then you go home and you eat and you shoot up and you sleep and you do whatever you need to do, you're going to get this giant 18-inch bicep. It's the principle of stress and rest. Endurance athletes feel guilty if they miss a single day of running or they get a sore throat and they still get out there and go on the bike because they want their legs to feel still feel supple and and keep the blood flowing and all these notions that are completely counter to physiology and common sense, but they still hold true in the endurance game. So that's what we're trying to do here with this course. Break that, break this consistency habit. Yeah, consistency is bullshit, L. When it comes to to endurance training, it's total bullshit. And even the- It's bullshit on my own personal life because I was Mm. talking to Mark uh, about this the other day where I would much rather- do a two-hour hike and go on long walks and all of this stuff. But it doesn't do anything for me. It, that's like a, my body's like, we know this game, you know? And it's it's not until I really started sp- sprinting, doing heavier weights, and then really doing being like, I'm not going to do any weights on my arms for two days. I'm going to wait till that bicep I just jacked is going to do its thing. But it's a conscious effort because, frankly, with my level of energy and a lot of other people's, I could do it every day. I could do it every day and be, you know, like in, in in that consistency, I can see getting into that. And I used to be that person, but now I realize my, I, I respond so much better by switching it up, chilling out, not doing something for a very long period of time versus short spurts. So, um, I see the benefits myself. Also, I took into the genetics account, which I'm more of a fast twitch muscle person. So I really, I really respond well to sprinting, but I don't like it, but you know, I'm starting to like it because I see not only are the results great, it's so much less effort and less stress than to like hike out a two and a half hour deal. It's so much less time of your life, you know? So I agree. Consistency is terrible when it comes to working out. I think consistency in terms of getting out of bed, getting the shoes on in some capacity is great, but you've got to switch up each workout. In primal endurance, I know it's not all about being in a ketosis in a state of ketosis while working out there are ketogenic athletes and i know that part of primal endurance can offer a a section of that for people who are interested in it but what is the biggest thing with endurance athletes out there i mean how do you get people over also this social constructed thing of the carbs this has got to be your biggest challenge it's not only just trying to tell people to slow it down not do as i mean basically you're telling every endurance athlete to not do what they are constructed and have been Mm -hmm. grilled in them to do on a variety of factors not just diet but also yeah chill out take a day off that's Mm -hmm. like an insanity thing for someone who's Mm -hmm. a triathlete yeah how do you get to the starting line in these endurance sports is you you take that type A behavior personality, that goal-oriented, driven mindset, and you have a passion for life and you want to pursue these great challenges and achieve something rather than sit on the sidelines and clap as people go by if you're watching the marathon from your house. And that's all wonderful. And that's all, it's been such a great foundation of my life and the experience I had as an endurance athlete pursuing these incredible challenges. However, that type A behavior needs to be regulated and you need to... Uh, integrate an intuitive approach to succeed. So we use that word a lot of times in the book where, you know, you are the world's foremost expert on your training. We have a lot of experts in the course and the video series, but no one knows better what works for you than you. And every day it might change, like you say. And so I want to qualify those comments a little bit when I say consistency is bullshit. It's 
whatever works for you and whatever feels right. So if you're one of these people that needs to be in a pattern and you don't like to change your, your route and you like to go and go to the same swim class at 7 a.m. every day and do it, that's fine. But you're going to get intuitive signals, whether it's working or whether it's not. And I think a lot of people outsource the decision-making, they outsource their intuition to a coach or a magazine or a book telling you exactly what to do. And that's where the mistake comes, when just being consistent for the sake of consistency, thinking that's going to lead to something. So what this fo- what follows then, if you wake up one day and you don't feel like working out, that's a really strong and powerful signal that you need to rest. And you should honor those uh, lazy uh, factors because we're not talking about lazy population that needs to get off their ass and, and do something. We're talking about the most highly motivated, driven, goal-oriented segment of society that's generally on the starting line of these races. So it requires a shift in mindset to kind of back off, sit back for a second. Just like you said, you have the energy, you could do it every day. You know where that's going to get you. You can read in paleothyroid solution that you push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, and you got tired and worn out. So we can do this mind over matter funny game and half the podcasts on the internet are people talking about, you know, developing the success skills and the discipline and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I think we've all overdosed on that at this point. And what we really need to do is chill out, get in touch with your own personal spirit and things that turn you on and things that work for you and things that make you happy and things that don't and make some decisions for yourself that are you know advocating for your own personal well-being and happiness and also physical fitness and and feeling you know energetic and uh, all those great things and i think we just outsource that and instead we sign up for a struggle and suffer experience maybe to balance our overly comfortable overly affluent life or to have something to struggle for And I'm saying that it's great to struggle and pursue these challenges, but when you do them in the correct manner and when you discipline yourself to rest rather than discipline yourself to go suffer and and traumatize yourself further, that's when you start to ascend to a higher level of, of, of personal existence and when you can leverage what you do in endurance training to other life circumstances and notice that wow, this job really sucks. I've been in it for 14 years. I haven't even thought about leaving because I just, you know, I don't think I deserve it or whatever the stupid things are going on. That's the same person that's in an overtraining pattern and, uh, you know, kind of just manifesting their personal insecurities and frailties into an endurance experience where we're saying in the glowing talk and the inspirational talk is like, this stuff can be a vehicle for personal growth. And believe me, that's what the races are all about. Dave McGillivray was on a podcast with Lance and he was talking about the Boston Marathon. He's been race director for 38 years or something. And he goes, I am in the business of helping people realize their dreams. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he sees as the, the foundation for something like the Boston Marathon. Anyway, that's, a, that's my little um, soapbox here, but it's like there's, there's magic in pursuing these endurance goals, these athletic goals, but you have to do it the right way. Otherwise, you know, you're just a throwaway. I like this outsourcing because we have a lot of people who contact Primal Blueprint or me and I'm, you know, sure Mark and everyone else. And, you know, you'll get someone's email. It'll just be like, what do I eat? Just tell me what to eat. Right. Or people, I had one guy call me up and he goes, I was listening to Joe Rogan. I want to do whatever he's doing. Just tell me what he's doing. And (laughs) I was like, man. And the thing that's funny about that is you can do that for a start. You can show someone a, a day of what primal eating looks like. 
But eventually that will fail for anyone who tries it because it will become intuitive, right? That person will become calorically efficient at some point, might need to reduce, et cetera. There's going to be, you're, you can't get away with not being intuitive at some point. So even if you wanted to just follow something and be dedicated every day like that in terms of diet, that is going to ultimately fail you, right? Because your body's going to change and adjust, right? As you eliminate the crappy oils, as you do this, as you get fat adapted, as we all talk about, Mark, you and I, uh, maybe you too. I've heard Mark talk about it. You know, at one point, how much food you used to probably consume and quote, could get away with. That's a terrible model because of what it can do to tap the pancreas and everything else. But you become so much calorically efficient. You start, so that has to be intuitive. You can't just keep following the same thing every day or someday you're going to wake up and go, the food that I've been eating for the past two weeks is all of a sudden, now I'm bloated and too full and I'm about to throw up, right? You have to be open to that intuition. Yeah, so that brings back to your your previous uh, statement and question that we're we're in this carbohydrate dependency lifestyle pattern in general, standard right. American diet. Now, as an endurance athlete, what you're doing is you're exacerbating the damage caused by carbohydrate dependency because you're a pig who's eating twice as much as the person in the next cubicle to you who is also suffering and not doing well and and percolating all kinds of diseases. But the endurance athlete is a unique population because you're burning so many calories. First of all, uh, the you know the rates of um, obesity and and excess body fat are not much better than the sedentary population, which is so shocking. I mean, the, really the, between the endurance population? between endurance camp. Oh, so like Cape Town Marathon, Dr. Timothy Noakes down there in South Africa love cites the statistic. I love that guy. <laughs> He's a guy who's really transitioned from carbohydrate paradigm and now is fully embracing you know, fat adapted living, but he cites a, a statistic from the Cape Town Marathon that 30% of the participants were classified as overweight or obese. And the world statistic, the world population is about 30% overweight or obese. So if you envision going down and standing on the road and watching the marathon and looking at the spectators and realizing that they're indistinguishable in their body composition from the people running by, you might think that there's a problem in the endurance community for how they're preparing for these races and how they're eating and fueling. And so what happens quickly in endurance scene is that you're training in a chronic pattern, so you're depleting yourself every single day. You're stimulating the appetite hormones and the opioid receptors in your brain that know when you get depleted and you bang something sugary, it's the most intense reward and it's addictive to come home and have uh, a hot fudge sundae or a soda or whatever it is that you get when you finish depleting yourself and exhausting yourself from an ill-advised workout pattern. So when you're in this game, what you're doing is you're fueling yourself on the ingested calories all day long. You're producing so much insulin because you're eating so many carbs because you're craving so many carbs that you're not capable of accessing and burning stored body fat. So even though you're training 14 hours a week or 24 hours a week or running 50 miles of running every single week, you still have 22 pounds of excess body fat. And it's, it's, it's mind-blowing because it doesn't make sense that if you can run across town every single week or ride your bicycle, especially since it's non-weight-bearing, you see the people out doing century rides, 100 miles pedaling their bike, and they stop at mile 50 and get a pie and ice cream and they keep going. And there's nothing happening in terms of the, a lot of people's very important goal of accessing and burning stored body fat and getting burning, down to that weight. The, the next 50 miles is just burning off the Sunday that they've just ingested. Exactly. And by the way, when they get to that end and they've another yeah. going to want to crave another Sunday. Yeah. Well, people, yeah. people can gain weight on a century ride. 
Okay. So, and then in, in real life, you can gain weight on a six month marathon training program because you're stimulating the appetite. And we can't, speaking of intuition, if you're hungry, you're going to eat. So if you do a sprint workout in the morning and you fast, like you just reported to me, if you're not fat adapted and you try to do what L. Russ just did today, I'd be dead. You'd be, you'd be crying. Uh, you will angry, be. Angry. You will be at Seven Eleven tonight getting Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> That's it's totally. it's it's a you know it's it's a genetic hardwired mechanism that when we're hungry we go and find food because hungry equals starvation equals death. And so you can't bypass that with willpower. And I think a lot of triathletes, because they bring that type A mentality and they say, that's it. I'm going to increase my training volume and I'm going to not eat as much food because I I need to lose weight. And it might work for a week or a month or something like that. And then you're going to fall apart because of, and you detail this wonderfully in the book. It's like, if you starve yourself and push yourself too hard, your body's going to go haywire. It's It's not a good deal. So the way to escape this carbohydrate dependency and this was, we had a long debate, Mark and I, about how we're going to start this book. What's the first thing we're going to say? And the first thing we say in chapter one is slow the fuck down. That's right. We took the F word out because we want to have a broad <laughs> marketing principles, but you have to slow down first if you're an endurance athlete because you will not give yourself a chance to transform your diet if you are burning too many carbs in workouts and depleting yourself with overly meaning, stressful workouts. Meaning you're in a chronic cardio glucose burning type of glycolytic workout. And so if you're still in that and you haven't made that adjustment and you're doing the diet, you, yeah, you're going to fail. That's yeah. Not and work. by the way, a, you know, a glycolytic workout, the CrossFitters use that term of, you know, a, glur- a, a workout that burns a high amount of glucose. If you're slightly exceeding your aerobic maximum heart rate. So you're going out for a jog. You feel fine. It's not strenuous. It's not traumatic. You can go for an hour, feel comfortable. But if you're 10 to 12 beats above this cutoff point of maximum aerobic function, you're burning too much sugar and not enough fat. And you're wiring your brain and you're wiring your body to be addicted to carbohydrates in the diet. Just from going a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Not extreme, because most smart endurance athletes and, and people listening to the podcast know that, of course, you don't go out there and push yourself too hard every day and you collapse at the end of your stair workout. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making a slight error because you're a little bit too motivated and devoted and you like to push yourself a little and feel that sense of satisfaction that you get from upping the pace a little bit. What this happens is it transitions you into a predominantly glucose-burning pattern during the workout, which your body learns to and, and stays in for hours and hours after the workout. Dr. Phil Maffetone talks about this all the time in his books. 180 minus your age, right? Well, he talks about a sugar-burning workout will affect metabolic functions for up to 72 hours after. So if you do an ill-prepared let's say it's an interval workout or a bicycle uh, group ride for an hour and you're burning through your sugar, you will be a sugar burner for days after unless you're fat adapted. Then all the bets are off and all the rules change. But for most people, they're eating a high-carb diet they go burn more calories with their personal trainer at 6 a.m., taking them through that you know well-deserved 50 bucks or whatever, 180 if it's in Beverly Hills. I don't know what they're making these days. <laughs> they're making but a lot they, more than that. You know, they push you as you've asked, and then you get out of that workout. You feel buzzed on endorphin-like uh, group of stress hormones, so you feel kind of that pleasant satisfaction after. And then you go back into sugar-burning pattern where you're going to need steady doses of food, preferably sugar, because your brain knows when you're down – and you're, you're depleted, you're going to want Ben and Jerry's rather than a salad. 
And so this is the pattern that most endurance athletes live in most of the time. And so we want to talk about escaping that. And the first step is to slow down. Like you said, Maffetone is the originator of this aerobic formula where you take your age, subtract 180 from your age. So I'm 50, not really, but it's a round number. I'm 52. 180 <laughs> minus 50 is 130. If you're 30, like you, you're 150 minus 30. <laughs> I'll let that one slide. <laughs> is, what is that? A 180 minus 30 is 150. So you identify your maximum aerobic heart rate. Very simple, 180 minus age. You don't need to go and do a lab test. You don't need to calculate a percentage of your maybe what your max is, but not really sure. You just take 180 minus your age, and Maffetone is found to be very, very accurate. And what you find, what you end up with is, oh my God, it's slow. It's pathetic in many cases. Yes. You're like, what the heck is this? I, now I have to walk instead of jog. Or now I have to you know, shift into the lowest gear and dawdle up this hill that I used to race up with no problem. It's because what we want you to do at that heart rate and below is to be predominantly burning fat. And the maximum aerobic number, 180 minus your age, is the point where you're, you're achieving fat. maximum fat oxidation per minute. So you're burning the most fat calories per minute at that heart rate. Now, if you were to go faster, what's going to happen? You burn more calories, of course. If you go way faster, you burn way more calories. If you sprint, you burn however many times as many. But now you're taking those calories from glucose. And if you envision a graph, we should have had a video podcast for this. The graph of fat oxidation goes up, 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 up as you start to increase your speed. And then it peaks at 180 minus your age. And then it drops sharply because when you go faster, you don't have enough oxygen to burn fat and you start burning that quick burning, dirty burning glucose fuel as your main source of energy all the way up to full sprint where you start to burn different stuff. But oh boy, that's the thing that endurance athletes really want to, you got to understand this concept and know how important it is to slow down. It's really a tough thing to wrap your head around. I've had, and I have, look, I'm with you on the Maffetone. I do it on the treadmill. I think I texted you the other day where I'm like, hey, I'm able to keep my Maffetone rate by going this fast on the treadmill. And I had never done that before. But I use a continuous heart rate monitor because I would have the tendency to be the person that would want to speed up. And I need to check and look. And it really has helped me with staying in that that zone I need to stay in. I want to throw out uh, the idea of um, uh, the slowing down, not just with the working out, though. Hear me out on this. I'm type A. You are. Mark is. A lot of us are. And I'm sure, like you said, a lot of endurance athletes are. Here's where I have found it to be a problem, not just with working out. It's because you have high energy, you can end up multitasking the fuck out of your day, which can be kind of adrenal cortisol inducing if you're not careful. You don't feel stressed. It's fun. You're doing a million things at once. But that is something where, again, when I look at my heart rate, and I like I'm doing a hundred things, and I go, what am I? And I feel I feel the cortisol, and I look at my and I go, oh my god, why would? But you know that's a mental thing that has nothing to do with me doing being mm-hmm. exercised. So I think if you're a primal and you know get to be a primal endurance athlete or you're type A, it's not just chilling out in the workouts, right? It's when you're not working out, not to run yourself ragged there too, and that could just be a mental thing. It could just be with you've got. So now I just kind of go all right, can I kind of go through this process a little slower? And it could be literally like uploading one of our podcasts or something. But instead of being like, I can do this 100 miles an hour because I can, you know, I, I, I consciously say, but don't. Because why do I want to tap into my adrenals and give it a fake threat that it's not having? So I've really found that that's the case because there's people with adrenal fatigue that don't even work out, right? Mm-hmm. And so it could be lack of sleep or whatever. So 
You hear what I'm saying on that? Like with the, with that, that yeah, you might get be, adrenal fatigue be- from uh, from commuting and traffic and getting pissed that someone cut you off rather than going right. Have a nice day and flipping them off five times in a row with a waving hand, right? right. So it's I mean, the workout you, you know, and when you're not working out, right? Yeah. It's got to look, especially if you're Type A, because like it happened to you not too long ago. We've talked about in the podcast where you were having so much fun with speed golf and you didn't even realize, like, because you and I are those kind of people. We're like, sports are fun. I play them all day, and then you realize, what am I doing? Well, now I'm I'm switching to a Type B. So I went 50 years as a Type A, nice. and now my next project is to just back off. And I'm I'm not kidding. I'm going to write a book about this someday too because I think Type A is overrated and achieving mm-hmm. and conquering and all these things are getting out of hand now, especially with the technological age and the pressure that, for example, kids face. My kids are teenagers and they're facing like the college admission pressure. Now my son's in college, and so he's wondering what career he's going to have and what, whether it's going to make money or not make money. And getting all these voices from the culture that measure and judge you by how you perform and what you do. And I had to learn in my racing career, um, you know, I was, I was, I was very motivated, very disciplined. It meant everything to me. I was a professional competitor. So I, I organized my whole entire life around my training and my competition and was taking it very seriously and was all wrapped up in myself and my performance. And you know what? That's not a, that's not an ideal peak performance mindset because what happens is when you are attached to the outcome of what you're doing, when you're overly attached to the outcome and you base your self-esteem on the results of your racing and the results of your workout that day, because workouts are so important because you're a professional and everything matters and everything's being measured and judged, including the guys you're training with. They're trying to beat you every single day because they know that you're a ranked athlete and that can validate their self-esteem. You get into a very negative pattern of uh, relationships that are not healthy and a relationship with yourself that's not healthy. And so I had to learn by, you know, dismal failure and crushing failure of, let's say, flying across the planet Earth to attend the richest race in the history of the sport of professional triathlon and dropping out because I was exhausted because I trained too hard to go kick ass at the richest race in the history of the sport Talk of triathlon. letting down on yeah. expectation, yeah. Yeah, and so you have to go fly home and you know process this out on a long airplane flight and think, <laughs> wow, I really got overly caught up in myself. I really made poor decisions because I wanted to, I had greed and all these impure motivators that were trying to get me to a place that I didn't, you know, deservedly belong to. In, in other words, short circuit the process of fitness by training too hard or by trying to multitask and be too important in other ways in life rather than just focus and, and do something that was the highest expression of my talents rather than diffuse my talents into all these areas just because I could. And so this, uh, this experience that I learned through the intensity of competition on the race course and the intensity of success and failure, there's nothing like it that compares to professional athlete. I mean, I was out there in my bathing suit. Everyone's looking at me in my underwear. And it's like, I'm either going to win or I'm going to get my ass royally handed to me by a bunch of hungry Aussies. And to process that and to realize that I'm, you know, I can think beyond this sort of superficial judging and measuring modern world and do things that I like to do for the pure love of the activity. So when I fly home from these horrible failures and have to recalibrate and get up the next morning to go swim, the reason I get up the next morning to, to go swim is not because I'm pissed and I'm going to kick that person's ass to kick my ass. The best mindset is, you know what? 
Swimming's fun. I, I enjoy being in the water and being one with my body and focusing on my stroke and my technique and being out in the sun, the morning sun hitting me and swimming back and forth, even though most people think it's boring. I thought it was a lot of pleasure to just, you know, feel how my body can move through a space like water or get on your bike and explore. You know, I lived in LA for half my career and I lived in Northern Cal and I would explore those mountain roads. And it was, there was nothing more fun than just being an explorer of modern times and looking at the Santa Monica Mountains in Los Angeles and experiencing more in a single day of traveling on my bike than anyone could in a car or, you know, in a magazine pages. And so when those things come to the forefront and you're doing things that you enjoy in your day, whether or not they're successful, such as writing a book. And Mark and I wrote this book. We had a great time. We had, you know, reminiscing and we had problem solving and planning and struggling and failing and this and that happened. And then you have this finished product. And yeah, you know what? I hope people buy it. I hope people do the course, which I had so much fun filming. But it's like in another, at another level, I could give a crap because this is just my contribution to the world. And if the world doesn't want it or the world wants to judge me and I get a negative review on Amazon, I honestly, now I'm type B, it has nothing to do with the process and the love and the pure enjoyment of the process. Now, I'm going to venture as an aside that people who are in that mindset, whether they're athletes or business people or entrepreneurs or working in a a state government bureaucracy, if you have a pure motivation for your job and you want to help other people and mentor people that you manage and do things that help other people grow and put a smile on their face rather than just vent on people just because you can because you're in a supervisory position, if you come to the table with these attributes I feel like you're going to have a much greater chance at success by traditional terms than someone who's a backstabber and a game player and an angler and all those things. So this is where I know we're talking in big circles and we we left off from endurance training, but it's highly applicable. And I also want listeners to realize that this digital course, this video course and these interviews and the material that I communicate out of the book is not your routine uh, yet another coach trying to tell you how to train for endurance sports. But more fun. Right. It's, it's more, more fun, fun than any program and it's, you can do. It's go. broader <laughs> scale. You know, we're talking about Absolutely. real life stuff here. Yeah. And I've coached so many people over the years where I send them a questionnaire is the first thing. What do you want to get out of the coaching relationship? What is your <laughs> what are your goals for the season? Tell me about your background. Tell me about your lifestyle. And what are your, you know, what are your pure motivators and all this? And a lot of times I get people writing things like, you know what? I really want to be a role model to my kids. So I want to finish the 50-mile run so my young children can see me living a healthy fit lifestyle. Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that great? Like little kids are going to give a crap about waiting around for their dad or mom to run 50 miles and waste their whole Saturday. So it's not really, that's a miss, that's a miss right there. And then the other miss is four months down the line. I know I'm kind of being badass now, but I want to bring this out. Is four months down the line when that person's showing up and doing, let's say, a preparatory race with a fever of 102 degrees or they're running on a bad knee that's getting worse and worse, but they don't want to quit. You know why? Because they already paid their entry fee and it's non-refundable. Or they already told everyone what, uh, what would everyone think of them right, if they just right, quit. That's right. That's the, that's so, the, that's the one I you know, my, my injection of uh, uh, mentality and, and uh, attitude and philosophy here is I think the, the, the greatest richness of the course is like, look, we got to get your mind right. We got to get you in the right uh, intuitive mindset before we talk about the mechanicals and the particulars and what the heart rate zones are and all these variables that endurance athletes seem to be obsessed with 
but forgetting that big picture mentality of having a pure motivation. And then with the basic mechanics, like controlling your bloody heart rate, mate, I know it's more fun to, to, to run a bit faster and stay with the pack. But if you're committed to the, the big picture goals, if you want to do the best for yourself, Sometimes you got to slow down, and that means letting your buddies go on without you and missing out on all that expression of your competitive intensity every single bloody day of your life, and instead looking toward that bigger picture, that goal of doing it the right way, preserving your health rather than blowing out your heart, which we can get a lot of people on the podcast if you want, expressing their regrets and giving you an admonition, don't do what I did, and that's kind of where we're coming from is to say, hey, let's do this right, let's have fun, and let's have your endurance experience blend into uh, increased enjoyment and peak performance in all other areas of your life too. I can't believe that I'm sitting across from you and that you are 52. Your skin is so amazing. You're so handsome. You look great. You've got it. You, I mean, it's really amazing. You are, you are a testament to all of this. So is Mark. Um, I, I feel that um, all of us, right, are the on the level of don't do what I did, right? It's everyone that's made the mistakes, you know, and I'm sure it's the person that's been through five divorces that finally figured it out and is writing that great marriage book. Like, hey, man, <laughs> you know, right? So it's like, trust us, we got ourselves into bad situations. And I want to just throw this out as a, a tip and then we'll, we'll end it. But for those that are interested, part of the type A discussion, uh, Brock Armstrong, who has a podcast called Workplace Hero, I actually ruined my arms for life because of an unergonomic situation, but because I was type A and I worked a million miles an hour on the computer. And so... I wasn't even working out at the time. Okay. So, you know, I mean, again, it, it's slowing down is everywhere because even in the, like I said, multitasking, when you're multitasking, usually moving your arms a hundred miles an hour, we have to think about the way that we move. And, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have slowed down even there. So it's not just right with working out. I love that you guys are focusing on the mindset. Should we close it up here and then pick up another one, maybe on diet and health, or what do you think? Right. So we got, you know, we got to the um, the early parts of the book and the approach of slowing down, getting getting intuitive rather than robotic, um, and anti consistency. Right. And so I think the next step comes when you integrate the dietary patterns that are primal aligned, and that's what the you know the, the primal endurance is about: endurance training and primal living put together for your particular goals. So we'll get into that next show. Els, fun. Thanks for oh, thanks you, for getting you're into so it. So great. I hope so many. You know, I see so many people, weekend warriors, and people doing Boston marathons and training for this, and I I see the suffering, like you said. It's if it's not fun and you're suffering, that in and of itself is a stress, right? But you paid your entry fee. That's right. It's we not paid, refundable. I paid my entry fee and I told so, everyone I was doing it. So yeah, no, that's big. I mean, yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks everyone for joining us on the Primal Blueprint podcast with Brad Perns talking about primal endurance. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet: the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. 
The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.